Welcome everybody to this uh, session uh, in the STR teaching series. Uh, my name is uh, Louisa Moss. I'm the division chair-elect of STR. And I'm very happy to welcome all of you to this very popular event on innovations and strategy teaching. We're very much looking forward to hearing from our panelists that will be introduced in a minute. Thank you the, to the panelists for joining this event. We're really excited and we're looking forward to hearing from you. I would like to um, just thank the organizers, Jenny Kwan uh, and Chen Guo, uh, and also of course, Andrea Contigiani, who was also uh, part of thinking about this event and, and developing it. Um, so we're really grateful to you. We're also very uh, grateful to Elisa Alvarez Garrido, who's uh, helping us out with all the technical things and without her, I don't know what we would do. Um, so thank you very much everyone for joining and we're looking forward to a really interesting discussion. So I'm gonna hand over to Jenny and uh, Cheng to get the session started. Great, thank you so much, Marie, and also to Lisa. Um, this is um, a, the brainchild of Andrea, so I wanna um, thank him for this idea when he was serving on this committee, on the teaching committee last year. Um, and uh, it's now just, be, our topic is so relevant and uh, top of mind right now, so it's a really perfect timing. Um, so we have three great panelists and they're each gonna present for about eight minutes. Um, we're gonna start with Emily, then go to Dan and end with JP. And then we'll have plenty of time, we hope, for um, exciting Q&A. So um, thank you all for coming. This is, uh, we had a lot of registrations for this because I think of the, the topic is so interesting to folks. And um, let me now turn it over to Cheng. All right, great. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Jenny. So I'm gonna do a quick introduction of our uh, three distinguished panelists. Um, when we uh, did this event, uh, we wanted to make sure that uh, since the event is on innovations and strategy teaching, we wanted to make sure we have you know, truly extraordinary teachers. Uh, and you know, I, I think one common theme across these three panelists uh, is, that they're, they, that, is that they've won a lot of teaching awards uh, and they're sort of legendary uh, for their teaching at their own institutions. Uh, we think what was also really interesting is that all three of these panelists teach strategy uh, but they teach it from, uh, they have very different uh, discipline-based orientations. So you know, Dan Wang uh, has a PhD in sociology. Uh, Emily Pankey has a PhD uh, from the engineering school at Stanford. And, and JP Eggers has a PhD from Wharton and is trained in core strategy and behavioral strategy. So we thought this sort of diversity in uh, perspectives on strategy uh, will be super interesting uh, today as well. So the order of the panelists today uh, will be Emily Pankey, Dan Wang and JP Eggers. So I'm gonna introduce them uh, in this order. Uh, so you, you have the bio here, uh, but Emily Pankey is the uh, Lawrence Hughes uh, Endowed Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the University of Washington. Uh, she teaches entrepreneurial strategy, and she also teaches a class Grand Challenges for Entrepreneurs, uh, which received national recognition uh, by the Aspen Institute uh, and was recognized as the Ideas Worth Teaching Award. And she'll be talking about that in her remarks. You know, what motivated her idea uh, for Grand Challenges, how she teaches it, some learning, some reflections. Uh, as you know, now Grand Challenges is really sort of a hot topic in strategy and issues like sustainability, environmental uh, sustainability uh, is also like really top of mind uh, these days. Uh, she's won several teaching awards, including the highest teaching honor at the University of Washington. Uh, and uh, for her thought leadership and research, she was also named a Schultz Distinguished Professorship in Entrepreneurship by the Richard M. Schultz uh, Foundation uh, in honor of the founder of Best Buy. Uh, Emily Pinky has a, a PhD from the Stanford Technology Ventures Program uh, from the Engineering School at Stanford University. So she'll be our first panelist. Uh, our next panelist 
will be Dan Wong from Columbia Business School. Uh, Dan Wong is the Lambert Family Associate Professor of Social Enterprise, where he also co-directs uh, the Tamer Center for Social Enterprise. And Dan's going to talk about all things AI, right? So he just finished teaching a technology strategy class. Uh, and in this class, they had a full-on class-wide pilot integration of ChatGPT and a bunch of other AI tools. They've also done some 3D printing of Legos, talked about generative AI and ethics. Uh, so he just finished teaching this course, so this is really top of mind. Uh, so he'll be able to talk about that. But during the Q&A, if you have questions about grand challenges, Dan also has a perspective on that, having uh, led uh, the Social Enterprise uh, Center at Columbia. Uh, as you, like Emily, Dan has won numerous teaching awards, including the very top uh, teaching awards at Columbia University, uh, the top honor given uh, to a professor by the MBA class. He's also won like, a Distinguished Service Award, uh, and he's also an associate editor at SMJ. And as I mentioned, he has a PhD in sociology uh, from Stanford University. So Dan will be going second. And then our last speaker uh, will be J.P. Eggers uh, from NYU Stern. Uh, JP is the Vice Dean for MBA and Graduate Programs at NYU, and he's also the Catherine Peter Kellner Professor of Entrepreneurship. Uh, and JP is going to talk about a strategy innovation, uh, innovations and strategy teaching at both the course and the program level. Uh, so you might recognize the Andrew Koo Technology Entrepreneurship MBA program. This is a very innovative MBA program that has received a lot of press coverage in the past couple of years. Uh, so he'll, he'll be able to talk us about some topics Dan talked about, but at a sort of higher level. Uh, so JP teaches course strategy, advanced strategy, and business analytics at NYU Stern. He's also won numerous uh, teaching awards, including the Professor of the Year Award from the NYU Stern MBA program. He's been on a bunch of these best 40 under 40, top 50 most influential professors uh, lists. He was, he's also a fellow in the NYU Society of Fellows. As well, on the research side, he's an associate editor at ASQ, and his PhD is in management from the Wharton School. Uh, so we're really excited to have this really distinguished a panel of you no know, uh, extraordinary teachers and leading scholars. Uh, and with that, we'll get to our first uh, first speaker, uh, which will be Emily Pinky. Emily, uh, I'm going to stop my screen share, and then the, the floor is yours. All right, so I'm going to share my screen. I have some uh, sort of basic slides here to kind of guide the conversation. Um, and as we go through these, um, I look forward to kind of discussing different points uh, later. So thank you so much to the organizers. I'm delighted to be included in this panel. I'm also really excited to learn from Dan and JP. Uh, the class I was asked to talk about today is called Grand Challenges for Entrepreneurship. And the core idea here is to think about how some of the frameworks and strategy in entrepreneurship could be used to address grand challenges. So grand challenges is very much a term that comes out of the engineering world, the engineering schools. And really, it means anything that's a complex problem that requires multi-sector, multi-organization coordination to address. So some of the ones that we talk about in the class I teach are things like homelessness. Uh, in Seattle, we have the third highest unhoused population in the United States. So it's a topic that students have direct experience with daily here in Seattle. We talk about things like energy, uh, clean food and water sources, climate change, global health, medical innovation, and then also whatever the students are interested in. So it turns out there's a lot of really big, messy, uh, and, you know, complex connected problems that are uh, facing the world. And our students have a lot of interest in thinking about how they can take their core learnings from their other business classes and try to affect change in a positive way in the things they care about going forward. Um, one of the sort of key insights driving the design of this class is that organizational theory um, doesn't just teach us about for-profit businesses, right? That it can actually tell us a lot about nonprofits, social movements, governmental organizations, and all kinds of other things. And so 
in the class, uh, I created sort of a set of frameworks uh, that really remind students of things that they may have learned in other classes, and then also build in uh, additional frameworks that they haven't encountered yet, um, perhaps uh, because um, you know they haven't had an entrepreneurship class or something like that. Um, really, the goal of this class is to help students be forward thinking about how they can apply their business education in ways that will help them affect change they want to see. And so it's a class that requires the students to do some personal reflection on what is really important to them and what kinds of things that they would like to uh, impact in the future. And then also sort of thinking about what it's going to take them to have the kind of impact they want. And part of this is really leaning into a core sort of entrepreneurial philosophy, which is that you shouldn't necessarily delay doing things so you have an optimal set of circumstances and resources because that time will likely never come. And really pushing students to think about things they can do in the short term that will better position them to have the kind of larger impact they're hoping for in the future. Um, and so to do that, there's a lot of spending time thinking about specific organizations that have been started to address a specific problem and really looking at who the founders of those organizations were at the inception, looking at what had to come together in order for them to affect change, and then focusing on a lot of the partnerships that had to occur. One of the things that we spend a lot of time talking about in this class is really what I would call ecosystem thinking about how no one organization, no one technology is going to be able to magically solve any of the grand challenges that we see, but it's going to require really careful strategic coordination across uh, lots of people, lots of organizations, lots of different kinds of organizations to affect the change and thinking about how you know, as individuals, as people leading organizations, our business students can actually create those ecosystems um, in the future. Some of the frameworks that we use um, that come straight from entrepreneurship. So we use frameworks from sort of main strategy as well, reminding students of things they've learned in their core and elective strategy classes. But we also lean into things like effectuation, uh, some of Sarah Sarasvati's work. We can also bring in things like design thinking to complement lean entrepreneurship and other things. Really, the goal here is to force students to think about how they can get close enough to a problem to actually be in a position to understand what kinds of solutions could be implemented and what might make them effective. One of the things that's been really great about teaching this class is that it's been a, a way to bring in a bigger variety of voices and experiences um, into the business school than traditionally we were bringing in. Um, so a smattering of recent speakers we've had are Denise Sandoval, who uh, founded Lava May, and then uh, which is a, a mobile set of showers for the unhoused population in San Francisco, and then actually evolved that into becoming an accelerator to help organizations around the world who were trying to help the unhoused populations. Um, Ed McKenzie is a co-founder of Drift, which was an energy derivatives trading company, so a for-profit company, but thinking about how to rationalize energy markets in a way that would preference uh, clean energy. Um, actually, we had uh, Ed in a couple of weeks ago, and it turns out Drift had just failed, <laughs> um, but the VCs that had backed them had just given him and his partner a bunch of money to found something new. So it's also nice to have sometimes smaller organizations where you can actually get into really meaningful conversations about what it means to fail when you're attempting to address a grand challenge and move that forward. Uh, we've also had Paul Cox, the founder of Psychology. He is a scientist um, and <clears throat> long ago um, saw a need and was able to help found a, a nonprofit that has been managed by professional nonprofit managers for the last 30 years 
talk about his experience as a scientist really needing the knowledge and insights of business people in order to found a new organization, right? Reminding students that they may not feel very unique in their class of MBA students, but that there are a lot of people who do not understand what it takes to start or run an organization and that they can partner with these people over time. Another recent speaker, just to sort of profile, would be Jeff Rowe. He is a noted spinal surgeon who's created a bunch of spinal devices for um, surgery. And uh, he has recently moved into starting IntuitiveX, which is an accelerator, an incubator that helps other spinal surgeons de develop and commercialize spinal devices. Um, so he has an interesting background in that he was a practicing surgeon for many years um, and had started medical device companies and then came back to our executive MBA program, sort of helping students recognize that their business skills are valuable even to really brilliant surgeons um, who've been successful in business already. Um, one of the great things about this class, and this is really moder modeled on my experiences in Stanford, which is very interdisciplinary, is that it's allowed us to bring in students from around campus, right? And so it's just been fantastic to see MBA students interacting with fellows from the medical school, PhDs in engineering, from our amazing global health program, from public policy, and really helping um, them recognize the value that they can add to these really brilliant scientists' work and thinking about how interdisciplinary uh, attempts to address big problems are both really complicated to manage, but also really doable as you start building those person-to-person -person connections. Um, you know, I think of this class largely as a sleeper class. I don't think that many of our students are, or at least my limited data so far, doesn't suggest that they're starting organizations right away, um, but that I hope it helps students really think about what kind of organizations they're going to work for, volunteer at, and support in the near future, and then help them be at a, a, in a place that they can eventually, when they encounter a specific problem, think about how their set of experiences and tools can come together to either found a new organization or really give a lot of support and push for an initiative or organization that they think is worthwhile. Um, I will just say one of the things that's been really interesting about this class is how engaged students are. Um, you know, like many different groups, we've struggled with engagement from students um, during COVID and post COVID, but I have really been impressed with how much students want to help make the world a better place and to impact their communities positively. And it's just been amazing to see how students are able to move away from what I call app-based thinking. Uh, you know, the initial, any class I teach in entrepreneurship, everyone's first idea is to create an app to do something. Um, recently, I had some students and, I, you know, I, I love apps. I use them all the time. So there's no shade on that. But sometimes that's not going to solve some of these big problems. So I had a, a group of students who were going to create an app to help educate people about the opioid crisis. And after some push and feedback, they came and said, you know, this is a class project. We really think the best thing we could do is partner with this other organization and create um, a club here at UW that distributed Narcan to the um, resident housing and to the Greek system, as well as fentanyl test strips. And they actually just got approval for an RSO. So I don't think this is going to solve the opioid epidemic, but I love the students actually took their learning class and rather than waiting until after graduation started something like right away that will hopefully have a positive impact on the community. Um, so with that, I will stop sharing my slides and I look forward to answering any questions that people have in the discussion section, I think. Great. Thank you so much, Emily, for that no, super fascinating um, uh, uh, perspective on how to teach grand challenges. Uh, and we look forward to talking more in the Q&A session. Um, great. Our next speaker then uh, is Dan Wang, who's going to talk about all things AI and uh, AI-related tools. 
understand, the floor is yours. All right. Thanks so much, Chung. Um, I am so inspired by Emily. Emily and I went to grad school together. Um, and so it is like awesome being her friend, being her collaborator, and also constantly having um, uh, Emily like by um, our sides to, to, to learn from uh, in so many ways. Um, I have so many follow-up questions for her. Uh, but I'm going to be talking about something super different. Um, uh, as Chung told all of you, um, I at Columbia Business School, uh, I teach core strategy and technology strategy. And the way that we structure courses here is that typically they're taught in half semesters. And so um, the technology strategy course that I teach here at CBS was a six-week course. Um, and basically what we do is we try to compress about 12 weeks worth of material into six weeks. And so it's quite intense, um, but it's really rewarding uh, because you get to cover a lot of territory and link topics together as well. Um, as this year, as I have for the past few years, um, I've taught three sections of this class, and each section was about 75 students each all MBA students. And this was a course that I uh, created alongside one of my former colleagues, Jerry Kim, back in 2016, 2017. So um, after Jerry left uh, um, uh, a few years ago, I continued to teach the course myself. And, and in that time, uh, we continue to innovate different uh, methods and also content as well. So I'm going to be talking about an, kind of an experiment uh, that we engaged in uh, this this year, this iteration of the course, because in December 2023, uh, 2022, sorry, um, ChatGPT took the world by storm um, and we all had to adapt. Well, that is, some of us had to adapt. Um, a lot of folks at Columbia Business School chose to kind of ignore it or overlook it, overlook it or deal with it later. Um, and many instructors um, thought to themselves, well, I have this decision to make. Uh, should I integrate this kind of untested technology into the classroom or should I wait to see what others do? Um, in the spirit of technology and innovation, I decided to go all in on this. And so um, I'm going to be talking about three things mainly. Uh, the first is kind of teaching with generative AI or AI tools, teaching about AI, um, and then kind of how I see student use of AI. A lot of what you're going to see are examples and applications. And so they might seem random at times, but I'll try to give some structure to them. So the first topic on teaching with generative AI, um, I think, is something that uh, our executive committee at the business school is thinking a lot about. How do we advise teachers? How do we advise instructors uh, to use generative AI? Um, and uh, there are three main ways that I've used generative AI, and I just want to show you some examples in terms of in terms of assisting me when it comes to teaching. Uh, the first is something that I'm just going to call planning, um, and each of these examples I'm going to show you has to do with ChatGPT. So if you haven't used use ChatGPT yet, um, you should give it a try because I think the way to make it useful is by being incredibly specific and also intentional with what you tell uh, the, the, the chatbot. And uh, that gets communicated through something called the prompt. And so this is an example about how I use ChatGPT to help me plan, that is develop a teaching plan. Um, I've been teaching a case on Lego for uh, a number of years, and it's about how Lego protects its manufacturing technology uh, using intellectual property. This key strategic decision point is whether Lego should use um, patents, trade secrets, or publish. And it's based off an HBS case from about a decade ago. And so um, if I didn't already have a teaching plan, but I wanted to feel inspired about uh, 
about developing a teaching plan, here's the prompt that I would use. Um, and what's really interesting uh, that I've learned over time through use of chat GPT and then through the advice of others um, is that you have to be real specific about giving uh, the chatbot um, a role. And so the role that I gave it was that you're a professor at a business school teaching highly experienced MBA uh, students. And then I gave it the dilemma. And I also was very intentional about um, kind of what I wanted it to do in this teaching plan that I wanted it to develop. And with this simple prompt, here's what it came up with. And I was clear to say that it was a 90 minute class. And uh, with that information, here was the results. I know that you probably can't see all of it, but this is a pretty good beginning, if you ask me, in terms of developing kind of an overall plan for 90 minutes as well. Um, it even has real specific suggestions, such as a suggestion about doing a case analysis about a, a company called Nanotech Innovations, which developed a groundbreaking nanotechnology for water filtration. Um, and so I don't know anything about that, but it's something that I could certainly look up on my own. And so this is a way to at least get started in terms of planning. Another way to use uh, generative AI, especially ChatGPT, um, is to think about uh, something that I'm going to call anticipation. Uh, the kind of courses that, that, that I teach, that I know JP and Emily teach as well, um, involve a lot of discussion. And discussion is in many ways the wild card when it comes to teaching a course such as strategy, because you can't always predict where the discussion will go. And so one case that, that I teach in the core strategy class is about PepsiCo, and the key kind of discussion question there is whether PepsiCo should uh, keep its snacks and beverages divisions together or whether they should split them apart in terms of ownership. Um, and here the prompt that I gave ChatGPT was um, contained a role in which I situated ChatGPT in the role of a uh, management consultant. Um, and I asked it to kind of outline what the advantages would be of keeping these two divisions together. But I also wanted rebuttals as well. And the purpose isn't so much that I can't come up with these myself. But the purpose is to see which other re, uh, uh, which other kind of justifications would I not be able to come up with, and also uh, it helps me kind of anticipate where discussions go. And so here were was the result of this prompt, and it gave me a good sense of if I hear this in the classroom, this is what I might say. If I hear that, this is what I might react with. And so again, it's a way of getting started, but it kind of helps you plan. And then the final way that I kind of use uh, generative AI when it comes to planning for teaching is that one thing that I always struggle with is coming up with examples in applying frameworks to kind of novel industries. And so um, in one of the sessions of technology strategy, we talk about disruptive innovation um, in the classical sense from Clayton Christensen. Um, and, and students always kind of ask, well, like, what else can we apply this to, you know, beyond kind of Toyota and GM or Netflix and Blockbuster. Um, and so the prompt that I use uh, was very specific. Again, I asked ChatGPT to come up with examples of applying uh, the framework to, to describing low-end innovations that have disruptive potential. But what's really important is the last line of the prompt. Um, so I'm just going to read it. The last line of the prompt is, the examples that I want it to give must contain justification for why incumbents would easily overlook these low-end innovations as serious threats. And the reason that's important is because that's the key idea behind disruptive innovation and that they're easily overlooked. If you just had this prompt without that last line, 
the examples that ChatGPT would have spat out uh, would be inconsistent with this framework. And so uh, being clever and also specific about the kind of prompts are really um, interesting. By the way, uh, here are uh, the answers it gives. I thought these were really great examples in terms of potential low-end disruptions or low-end innovations in each of these industries as well. So that's how I use chat, uh, um, generative AI to help me uh, prepare for teaching. Uh, but there's also the matter of teaching about AI, generative AI especially. It's an area that is exploding. It's moving faster than we can understand. And so I'm just going to give you a few examples about how we talked about it in class this past spring in technology strategy. Uh, so the first place where I really introduced it substantively was early on when we had a case about Google. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the nice part about having something that's so buzzy is that you can always find news about it, but it also provided a pathway to connect um, what we seemingly understand about generative AI as a black box technology to something that we understand much better in terms of what drives competitive advantage in a lot of technology firms, and especially big tech. And so the way that I did this was that um, I kind of asked about students' experiences with generative AI and chat GPT, and then you can and kind of suggest that, well, look, this is not so different from what we're already used to in our in our everyday lives. Um, if you've ever used a search gen, uh, engine, um, then what you're using is not so different from uh, large language models that, that form the underpinning of predictive AI. This then kind of uh, leads to a natural discussion about, you know, whether Google uh, should see AI as a threat or a compliment. And, and so in the class itself, we actually um, had this debate. Um, and uh, the question I asked everyone uh, via a real-time real, real poll was how big of a threat are these um, uh, uh, generative AI tools to Google's core search advertising business? Um, and so these were the results. And so these were the results from one of the sections. Um, and I was I was actually kind of surprised by this um, because um, I had thought that most of the students would say that this would be a major threat to Google's core search business, but that was not the case at all. There's still a number of skeptics, and, and I had to adapt as a result of that as well uh, because you have to remember that people have very different kind of opinions about this, and so that's one way to integrate uh, kind of generative AI discussion into existing kind of teaching plans. Um, but the kind of new innovation we uh, we uh, made in this class was to actually directly address this issue of of generative AI as a as a strategic decision or question. And so here are examples two examples of of two new cases um, that that we experimented with this year. Um, so the first is about Stitch Fix. Um, if anyone used Stitch Fix before, it's basically um, a service where you input your fashion preferences and they send you a box um, of of five uh, garments that that kind of match what you um what uh what you input um I've tried it I was not very satisfied uh but anyway the key discussion question there uh was when is AI a strategic resource or capability and the whole purpose is to kind of get students to understand what's kind of underlying AI and so the key activity uh that um I deployed in this class was an open source um kind of a tool called Google Teachable Machine uh, if you haven't used it um it's a really simple and easy way to try to get folks who have zero experience um in um, kind of machine learning and AI to understand exactly what it does. And that provided a natural entryway into the discussion of when AI is strategic. 
another case uh, that um, we wrote actually a couple of years ago, but all of a sudden becomes incredibly relevant today, is about the relationship between AI tools and organizational structure. Um, and there, um, the case was about MasterCard's attempt to integrate this. Um, and the key activity there uh, came from uh, um, a book on AI that was published published last year. Some of you might be familiar with it. Um, and, uh, and in the book, um, there is a uh, kind of activity called the AI Systems Discovery Canvas um, that is easily applied to the classroom. And so, so these are ways to start thinking about this. Um, and the last topic that I've been teaching for a number of years um, is about AI ethics. Um, and here I use a case that I wrote about autonomous vehicles. And it's not so much about computer vision um, and how technology can uh, create um, you know, a, um, a competitive advantage in the industry, but it's really about another uh, key strategic issue, which is um, about, well, if we're going to have robots driving our cars, then which stakeholders' opinion should matter most in developing kind of a framework that's either legal or informal in nature for the ethical behavior uh, of these autonomous vehicles. Um, and the key activity there is that um, prior to the class, um, I had collected data uh, about um, from, a, uh, from a market research agency um, about Americans' opinions about um, autonomous vehicles. And uh, I put all that data in a data dashboard, which allowed uh, students to be able to see um, how others around them feel about autonomous vehicles. And that essentially informs the debate, uh, which can range from very philosophical uh, to trying to understand you know, what you should do in trolley problem type of situations uh, to the very practical, which is you know, how do you decide whose opinion really matters here? And so these are all examples of kind of thinking about AI um, in terms of a broad, in terms of the broader context of society. And the final thing that I'll kind of mention is um, the, the the more experimental part of the class, less about content and more about what to do about students um, and their um, either desire or uh, to use uh, AI tools or their skepticism about it. And so I made this decision in December, right before January, which is when I was going uh, to start teaching the course about whether I should have a policy about AI uh, in the class. And so um, I decided at the very last minute to stick this into my syllabus. And so there was an excerpt in my syllabus that was an AI assistance policy uh, in which um, I uh, told students uh, that not only is it permitted, but it's in fact encouraged. Um, and the way that I framed it is that this was an opportunity for me as well to learn um, as an instructor um, to understand the boundaries of AI in terms of being helpful as a pedagogical tool. And so I encourage students from the very beginning to use generative AI tools in submitting their homework. Um, in this class, every session has a homework assignment in which students have to vote on a strategic question relevant to the case that we'll be discussing, and then they have to write a short answer response justifying their decision about what to do. Um, and so what I'll show you now is a series of graphs uh, that tell you about, and so I kind of collected data on whether students are, are doing this. I asked them to, if they used uh, ChatGPT to help them with their homework, to tell me. And so what I'll show you right now is the adoption rates in, of, of using ChatGPT for their um, homeworks over the course of the semester, and also how it influenced what they actually wrote. Um, so what you'll see is a graph in which the x-axis um, shows from left to right the cases in chronological order that we did, and on the y-axis is the proportion of students in the class that use ChatGPT uh, for their homework responses, and, and here's what it looks like. 
So very early on, um, the first case we did was about Lego and under 10% of students um, actually used ChatGPT, but the adoption was quick. There's a dip, which I can't really explain. Um, uh, if you see uh, towards the end of the semester, we had a couple guest speakers, so it wasn't as helpful to use ChatGPT. But the last case that we had was on Meta. And by that point, um, almost 30%, uh, more than 30% of students were using ChatGPT for their, their poll questions or their homework assignments. Um, so how did the use of AI affect their poll question, uh, how they actually answered these, these, these questions? And so what this graph is going to show you um, is the proportion of students um, who voted for the most popular choice in the homework assignment. So they have to vote on something. And like generally there's like a more, uh, I mean, always there's a choice that is the most popular. And so let me show you the baseline. So this is gonna be students who did not use AI assistance or so so, so they told me um, and what, what and the rate of them voting for the most popular choice. And the students who did use AI assistance with their homework, this was their rate of voting for the most popular choice for each of these homework assignments. Um, and uh, if you kind of observe, generally uh, what happened was that for most of these cases, the students who did use AI assistance tended to choose the most popular choice. And only for two of the sessions um, was it the opposite. In addition, I also looked at um, when students submitted their homework. And so here's a graph of, in general, overall, um, the proportion of students who um, uh, submitted their homework late. Uh, so I show all my students this, by the way. It's um, I'm, I'm fully transparent in my class. Um, and uh, uh, this always happens, by the way. Uh, like most students, by the end, by the last class, you can see almost like 50% of them are submitting their homework late, which is fine. That's fine uh, for me. I mean, they're they're busy, I guess. Um, and uh, um, but I also looked at this in terms of just the students who use ChatGPT on their homework assignments, and there the numbers were, were significantly worse. And so those students who use ChatGPT are obviously using it to economize. And so this presents us with a number of different quandaries um, um, in terms of thinking about um, what rules we wanna put in place in terms of, in terms of um, the use of ChatGPT by, by students. The last thing that I'll kind of share with you is how students actually use ChatGPT on their homeworks. And, and basically I saw four different ways of them using it. Um, the first is that students use ChatGPT as an adversary and so what they'll do is that they would um, kind of write down their own thoughts about a question that they're supposed to submit, and then they would ask ChatGPT to bring up the counterpoint, and then they would refine uh, their own thoughts about the question. Another way they used it was as a coach. And so they would write down their own thoughts about a, a poll question or a question they're asked. Um, and uh, they, it might just be bullet points, and they would ask ChatGPT to deepen the thoughts or push them to go further in elucidating their logic. And then the third way to, that they used it was that they asked ChatGPT to kind of, if they had written something long or they had identified an article through external reading that was relevant to what they wanted to write, they asked ChatGPT to summarize that and they would adopt some of that language in their own kind of homeworks. And then I think the most, um, probably the, the, the most beneficial way that students use ChatGPT because 40% of our students do not come from the US um, and many of those students uh, do not uh, speak English as a native language. Um, a lot of those students um, who spoke English as a foreign language used ChatGPT as a language tutor and that greatly improved the quality and clarity of their poll responses. So um, I know I gave you a lot, but you know I'm happy to answer any questions. Uh, thanks uh, to the organizers for putting this together. Great, thank you so much, Dan, for that really comprehensive and fascinating uh, perspective. 
on AI from the front lines. Uh, uh, like you know, grand challenges, uh, AI has been really top of mind. So I'm sure there's going to be some great questions on these topics uh, in the uh, Q&A. Uh, so last but not least, uh, we have JP Eggers, uh, who will be presenting. And then after JP Eggers, we'll have a, the Q&A session. So you can start thinking of your questions. Uh, and then during the Q&A session, which Jenny will moderate, you could raise your hand to ask your question, or you could type something in the uh, chat box in which Jenny would read. Uh, so JP, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Great, thanks, and thanks everybody for being here. Um, thanks uh, again to Emily and Dan for for great presentations on uh, on their topics. Um, I, I feel like I'm a little bit the maybe in danger of being the old fuddy-duddy professor who's not going to use slides. Hopefully, it goes better than uh, some of those talks I've seen where where someone shows up with, with without anything um, on, on that end. So. Um, but I, I really wanted to just kind of think a little bit higher level or a little bit more broadly around kind of like where I think the opportunities are. So kind of a little a little bit of giving advice. And I'm happy to give some examples at the end of some stuff that I do uh, nowhere near as uh, comprehensively as what what Dan and Emily kind of walk through. But um, my my main perspective is that we typically think about strategy as the integrator in the business school environment. Um, and you know, I think a lot of departments say that to some extent I can verify as a dean that I certainly hear other departments discussing this. But I, I think when we talk to students, we definitely hear it over and over again, that strategy is the place where you figure out how all the pieces fit together. Um, it's one of the reasons that like strategy capstones and things like that are especially valuable and, and, and popular. I think for a long time, integration has been mostly around how do we integrate finance or accounting or marketing or operations and things like that. And, you know, maybe over the course of the last 10 years, we've seen sustainability coming in as another piece of this, partly because it has been such a core topic of research for many of us that do strategy. Um, and, and I don't want to I don't want to skip skimp on that, but that's that's not one that I have as much as much direct exposure to to some extent. I think really when I think about the opportunities, I think there's there's a new set of, of pieces that we we know about and we've been doing some of these things, but but they kind of echo a lot of what what uh, what Emily and Dan have been talking about. Uh, a new set of pieces that we're going to be in, we should be integrating with. First, uh, first would be technology, and when I think about technology, especially in a business school, what I'm really talking about specifically is the PM, the product manager, or the product management mindset. Um, whether being a PM as a career path out of business school is uh, here to stay or a fad, certainly as Amazon looks to automate more and more of what PMs do, it becomes questionable exactly what the volume is going to look like for product managers coming out of business schools. But the underlying mindset is still something that, that companies find very attractive, and there's a lot of opportunity to integrate with, uh, with what strategy does. So when I think about what I'm thinking about here is the idea about, you know, some of what, what was discussed before, how do we use tech as an advantage, right? Where is the competitive advantage of technology? But even more than that, specifically, I think the two parts I would point out would be experimentation. So basically, how do you design good experiments in a business environment, whether it be A-B testing or something much broader and grander than that, uh, that you would do? So how can we think about ways to collect better data to help make better decisions? 
And then how do we integrate design-based approaches, right? How do we how do we flip this from a research-based perspective to a design, ideation, creatives, create something, test it, validate it, tweak it, continue, then move it to implement? Um, these are the kinds of things that I think strategy is really good at helping to bring in, um, especially as we think about not just A-B testing for button color on a web page, but like true business experiments. So a lot of opportunity to, to do things like that. And I can give some examples on that. Second would be around, uh, relatedly, is around analytics. Um, and for a lot of us who are kind of large-scale quant researchers, this is an, actually an opportunity to teach a lot of what we do for research. Um, so it's talking about things like causal inference, but not causal inference from the way we talk about it reviewing papers, but thinking about like, well, when can firms act on these data? Like, when is it not kosher? When do they need better information? What are the challenges around this? Um, how can they use powerful descriptive and analytical analytics tools like to, to map competitors or opportunities or technologies or what's going on? How can they develop a more data-driven decision-making mindset? Um, how can they ask better questions in order to kind of interrogate their data in better ways? Um, and so this kind of iterative back and forth, learning about being inductive and deductive and when you would choose one versus the other and how you alternate between them, these become important tools that I think uh, we can kind of bring under the strategy umbrella for bringing to talk with the students about. Again, it's not about necessarily how to run this regression or that regression or a random forest model or whatever it is, but like, what do I, what kind of model would I want to do? What data would I need? How would I want to interpret and take action based on those results? And the third more generally is about experiential learning. Um, really, this is an opportunity for applied kind of strategy consulting. Um, we've certainly seen the growth in experiential learning classes, requirements, opportunities, whatever it may be across business schools, increasing dramatically over the course of the last 10, 15 years. And it's an opportunity to apply the breadth of those business skills and work with a partner on a real world, world issue. So, you know, taking what you've learned in the classroom, applying it in context, this is like the adult learning cycle, think, act, reflect. And so we're, we're trying to provide and find ways to do that. What I've tended to find is that a lot of uh, faculty in other more specific functional areas aren't as interested or maybe as well equipped to jump into experiential learning, but I think there's a lot of opportunity for those of us that, 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 that do think and work more strategically to go do this. So what does this give us? It gives us a chance to rethink uh, how we do the core, what belongs in the core, though that's obviously dangerous because no one has enough time to cover all the things that should be in there, but especially things like new electives, like the classes that Dan and Emily have talked about, as well as potentially new programs. Um, so, uh, you know, it was mentioned earlier kind of that I've been spent a lot of time over the last seven years now working on the building, creating the, the tech MBA at Stern. Um, we have an undergraduate program that's now kind of the undergrad uh, kind of reflection of that tech MBA. And it really builds around all three, this kind of tech, the PM mindset, analytics, and experiential learning, and tries to use innovative formats as ways to do it. Um, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that you should go volunteer to build a new program. Uh, should someone ask you to do that and you want someone to talk you out of it, I'm happy to, to, to be that person. Um, but I, I think there are a lot of opportunities to do this. And I think we're going to see more and more of these types of things coming up in business schools over time. And so if we're thinking about how and why we, what we need to do as faculty to stay relevant from a teaching point of view, um, these become important skills to kind of think about. Um, uh, 
I, I think maybe I'll stop with that. I do have some examples on kind of like experimentation exercises and, and data exercises and uh, kind of projects for, for PM type classes. And I can talk a little bit about my, my own foray into giving students an assignment where they had to use ChatGPT this spring. Um, but let me, let, let me kind of pause and we can go to questions and see what people want to hear about from everybody. Great, thank you so much, JP, for that you know, fascinating Dean's level uh, perspective uh, and program level perspective, uh, really great. So I'm gonna pass it now to Jenny Kwan, who will moderate uh, the Q&A session. We have around 15 minutes. Uh, so Jenny, the floor is yours. Great, yeah, thank you, Cheng, and thank you to our speakers. Um, let's see, um, can I get, Alyssa, can you, thank you, right. I wanted to see if I could see anyone's hands up. Um, we had some questions in the chat, so um, I, maybe we could start with Masiej Vorkievich. Did you get your answer, your question answered? You asked about, you know, like how we can extend this. Go ahead and unmute yourself and ask your question if you didn't get it answered. Yes, um, uh, thank you very much. So I, I think terrific presentations from all three uh, of our panelists, and I think great uh, uh, in terms of sort of integrating lots of topics. I mean, grand challenges looks like the ChatGPT is another grand challenge <laughs> uh, to kind of add it to our list. I mean, I was kind of wondering, and I think this is uh, to, all, to all three, I mean, to what extent uh, I see very similar approach to using generative uh, models in the classroom, which is kind of help with content creation, uh, you know, giving for homework, but this kind of leaves a question kind of hanging, what is left? I mean, what are we teaching those students that they can't get uh, with the GPT uh, for? I mean, this, this program can crack uh, McKinsey cases, answer very complicated problems. It already has theory of mind. I mean, there's a beautiful paper from Microsoft, you know, the, the sparks of AGI. Um, I don't know if you have any reflections, you know, JP, from your kind of building a sort of cutting edge MBA program, Dan sort of teaching in, them, uh, um, in the class, you know, what is left? Like, what are we doing? Are we just the middle people, you know, between the technology and students? I mean, sounds like a very expensive uh, role. Great question. Uh, who wants to take that first? Um, Dan, why don't we start with you and then see if, if JP has an answer to that too. I don't have any good answer to this question. I don't think any really, anyone really has. Uh, I think I think whatever uh, working papers that you see coming out, seeing telling you which functions or roles or jobs that are coming out uh, that would either be replaced, augmented um, uh, um, about this, will probably have results that that change with the next iteration of a large language model or foundation model. Um, and so it's hard to make these kinds of predictions. But but what I will say is is the following for for just the current purposes of the use of that in terms of preparation um, and health helping students become um, um, more um, more aware I think that's a really big uh, aspect is that what what it cannot um, so far do is replicate um, in many ways the the kind of spontaneity and the inspiration that comes from an in-person discussion and um, at least what I have found is that um, the encouragement of of stu encouraging students to use these tools to help them prepare uh, makes them sharper uh, when it comes to um, a, a, a discussion. Um, and uh, uh, shifting not from the uh, shifting to to something that that I've been thinking a lot about as well, which is our PhD program as well. Um, I put um, our qualifying exam question for the organizational theory field exam into into ChatGPT, and you know what? It was pretty good uh, the response and. And so um, it got me thinking about like what what how we should handle something like that, um, and 
and part of it could be just putting more restrictions, but the other part could be kind of adapting and and one and some tools are already available to us historically. Um, for example, there are many exams that are oral in nature. And so what that means is that maybe we have to shift to something like that. But but this is something that I'm just discovering day by day um, as well. So I am uh, I'm sorry that I can't be more comprehensive <laughs> in the response about that. Dan, I think you gave us the answer to this in your <laughs> slides. Like, why, what do you, like, you, you absolutely gave us the answer. And it was the slide that showed that the people that use chat GPT were more likely to give us the most popular answer to the question. What is, what is a large language model going to do? It's going to give you the most obvious, most straightforward answers. So what it becomes, I think, is an opportunity to help teach people how to think critically about what ChatGPT gives us and to, and to help figure out what is the, the, le the less intuitive options. So for what it's worth, these, this, the assignment that I gave my students this year, this spring, was uh, we were doing uh, boundaries of the firm, vertical integration, vertical horizontal integration. And I was like, Ask ChatGPT why, and I use the example, that Netflix produces and distributes their own content. So just pick one of these things, right? Give five reasons, right? Um, and they had to pick something to go do. And then I said, pick one of the answers and it's gonna be underdeveloped, but tell me why it's a good one and give specific, more specific examples in detail. That's fine. The better one was find the problem. Find like the flawed, simple, basic logic that, or at least so, thinly kind of like laid out that it, it it doesn't really have enough meat to kind of hang on it um and and tell me why it's wrong and what needs to be done differently to try and to try and do a better job with that um so i, I don't mean to be overly provocative so i think this is a really super important question but i do think the underlying structure of the way the the models actually function leads to convergence on average now you can prompt it if you're really good you can prompt it in ways to try and be divergent but even so, I think it still struggles. Like it still needs something to work off of to go do that. And so to me, I think the best opportunity is this like back and forth where you get ChatGPT to give you the basic answer. Then you try and think critically about it. You feed that back in, try and get it to criticize, criticize itself using that perspective and keep pushing on it. Um, there's, there's just a lot of opportunities in my mind to try and go do that. Not to avoid it entirely, but to figure out how to use it better. Um, to, to help you do work. So I don't know, that'd be my take. I just want to respond to something because it's in my experience using ChatGPT with students and then from what both of you said, I also just think that ChatGPT, these other AI models are a good start on anything, but that we can really show our students the value they have um, in applying their critical thinking and pushing beyond it, right? So I do think that it can accelerate the beginning of an assignment, the beginning of an answer, and you'll get a decent one. But to really get to good work, to show students the value of their education, you need to help them think about how they push beyond that great start. I, JP, I, was... this, uh, I think is, uh, sorry, Jenny. Oh, um, go ahead, yeah. Um, is that uh, that that process that JP uh, discussed and gave an example of, which I thought was, was, was brilliant, um, that involves more work than if you were to do something like that without chat GPT. And, and so I think I think it behooves students to, to begin to experiment that, that way. So, so JP, I, I was gonna say almost the same thing, which is that Dan did answer the question in his presentation, which was that the students are supposed to vote on, um, uh, on what they would do. And, you know, I was, um, I was emailing with uh, Lisa Cook, who's now on the Fed Board of Governors and who previously was on the Council of Economic Advisors for the um, Obama administration. And 
in both of those jobs are a ton of work. Um, but the difference between being an, an advisor and an actual governor is that she has to make decisions and, um, and there's a lot of consequences to those decisions. So it's one thing to do a school assignment. Um, it's another thing to actually be deciding something on the basis of you know, your analysis. So I, I love that you have the, this voting kind of um, assignment um, because people have to make decisions. Um, so anyway, the great question, Masiej. Um, let's see, we have Lucy and then Peter. So Lucy, go ahead. Why don't you go with your question? Uh, thank you so much. Really learned a lot from you. I have a question about the difference of teaching between business students and engineering students. I have been uh, teaching in business school, like MBA students, but recently began to teach engineering students as a selective course. So and my question is, well, I teach, for example, strategy and also talk about those uh, different theories and let those different theories debate. Um, and like engineering students, they don't like it. Like they kind of like, uh, and also let them to do like a business school traditional style case analysis. They don't know what case analysis is. So it's a selective course for engineers. This is my first time to teach that a graduate level engineering student at a selective course. Uh, so uh, they are selective, that means they are interested, but I don't know like any suggestions for me, like always teaching business school, but the first time teach engineering students at graduate level at a selective course. That is a great question for this crowd. Go ahead, Emily, were you about to? Yeah, sure, happy to jump in as a former engineering student, I guess. I mean, I think that's what you said is sort of key there, right? That they don't know how to do case analysis. This is a totally foreign thing. Collaboration, even speaking in class is something that doesn't happen in undergrad engineering very much, unless they're more like the human-centered design stuff, but that's a whole other thing. Like, um, So I would say you teach them. You teach them how to do a case analysis. You teach them what you expect. You teach them, you know, I'm going to, ask you this question. If they really struggle at first, you can use some more small breakout groups um, to kind of help them build some confidence and then come back together. And then I think cold and warm calling. I think you can use all the strategies that we use in a typical MBA class. I think you just have to kind of not assume that they have ever encountered it before, explain it, and then push them a little bit. I will say in my experience coming into business school classes, the students uh, in other disciplines, even if they're very, very brilliant, tend to be kind of intimidated because they know very little or sometimes nothing about business. And so just remember, that's also kind of the uh, concern they might have is that they feel like they don't know what they're talking about. Anybody else want to tackle that? All right, um, let's go to Peter. Go ahead, Peter. Uh, just to uh, follow up for Lucy, because I've also taught engineering mm -hmm. students, you, you try to level set uh, to make sure. So you should have uh, your in, during your first session or two, you try to, as Emily said, you could um, use a case to teach the case, but also level set in terms of language because they're not going to have the same business language at all. My question is really more operational. And I, it was and I apologize if I missed it because I had to step away. Uh, but it, it goes to Dan. Uh, it seemed like, and I put it in the chat, it seemed like most of the way you used it was for individual assignments. So I'm curious how you would handle uh, the team dynamics. So for example, what if some of the folks on the team wanted to not use it versus to use it? And maybe it's a simple operational thing, but how would you handle, let's say, some type of conflict 
because uh, I, you know, some of my students are really entrepreneurial in the sense that they they cannot separate ownership and control. Um, uh, so that's really kind of sums up the question. That's a great question. I've not dealt with that specific instance of that question as well. There are certainly group assignments in my class, but I interpret your question as something that's that's much broader and much more of a general, you know, question about kind of team dynamics and, and uh, uh, broadly, which is that um, the use of of resources, the debate over um, how to um, approach different roles that exists all the time. So I see your question as part of a broader class of questions that that represent, I think, a, a big learning opportunity as well. Um, how I I generally approach these types of conflicts, which, you know, instantiate in, in various ways, um, uh, is that if a group complains to me about, or one member of a group complains to me about another group member, um, then uh, I see it as a way uh, to tell them, it's like, look, I mean, this is what happens in the real world. I mean, this is what happens in everyday life. You're going to have to come up with a consensus. You know, I've given you the class policy on this, and it looks exactly the same as if you were, you know, working in a large organization and you have a policy that you have to interpret as a team. And so this is the opportunity to kind of work it out, um, to come to an agreement. Um, and and, and that, that's, that would be my approach for this. Um, it's certainly something that um, I don't think is necessarily scalable because what you're deliberately not doing is offering a rule uh, to, to help them you know, make these governance decisions. But at the same time, um, it's a really incredibly valuable opportunity for them to grapple with something that they're probably going to have to decide on um, right after they graduate or perhaps at an internship as well. And so, so I, 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 I kind of like say, like, look, you know, I can be a mediator in terms of, you know, not letting tensions um, rise to the point of, I don't know, fisticuffs. But at the same time, um, like it's, it's really a learning opportunity for the group. And I see that as a much more general question. I think it's a really great question, though. And I haven't thought about that, but I will uh, in terms of the next iteration of the class. So uh, just a quick follow up, and I apologize to monopolize, but so maybe it's because I'm at a Catholic university. So you never get any pushback around the ethics of, of the use of, of these tools, because um, that, that's come up um, not necessarily in the classroom, but generally among educators, at least at my university. Oh, I've definitely experienced that. I'm sure uh, many people in this meeting have experienced uh, that as well uh, from, from various sources. It doesn't just come from students, although I've heard uh, from students about this as well, and that they refuse, they feel hesitant because it's against their uh, kind of deontological view of the world, you know, their moral principle about what education is supposed to, to do and how they're supposed to learn. Um, in that sense, it's like I'm not there to kind of tell them what their philosophical grounding or, or foundation ought to be. But at the same time, um, it also represents an opportunity to examine the effects of technology on our everyday lives about how human society evolves um, in, in response to these big discontinuous shifts as well. Um, and and I, think, I think prompting that reflection um, is really important uh, because it says that, well, look, like things change. Um, and you're in the middle of one of these big changes right now, or what we, you know, think or perceive as a big change. Um, and so, and so, it's a chance to also examine, you know, what 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 your role is, you know, how you you might adapt as well. And so, and so that that's what I would say. I'm not there to kind of like defend generative AI. I'm more there to kind of give an opportunity uh, for students to kind of better understand um, kind of changes in society, but also their their own self development too. But but yes, I mean, like it's, I've definitely experienced, you know, that kind of pushback. 
Well, I, you know, we are out of time, but I want to thank all of the, our panelists and for the attendees and thank you for the questions that we got. Um, I want to turn this back over to Marie because I know she wants to take a photo. <laughs> so go ahead. Thank you so much. And thank you, Marie. Elisa, I guess you're going to do a screenshot for us. That would be great if everybody can turn on the cameras and smile for us and we will advertise the session on STR. Thank you so much for a great discussion. So, uh, smiley faces. Three, two, one. Thank you very much. Uh, we will post the video on social media in the coming days. Thank you. Great. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone, thanks for participating. And thanks Please. to all Thank you so much, time. everyone. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Yeah, thanks for organizing.